Okay, we're back in the Olivet Discourse, Understanding the Times, and I hope that we've been emphasizing that aspect enough, but uh, the next portion of the Olivet Discourse, which we're looking at in this class, the Olivet Discourse has a whole section on it that is applicational, not that any of the other portions are applicational. But we try to draw application from every every passage, but these are devoted particularly to encourage, to motivate, to give a proper perspective on eschatology or Bible prophecy. So in the Olivet Discourse, uh, what we're going to do is get back into it. I'm going to give you a little bit of an introduction today. We probably won't get too far into the outline and I didn't know how many new people we'd have, so I thought I'd give a little bit, probably abbreviate the uh, review, but a few things that we want to review. The disciples were on the Mount of Olives looking at a site, something like what you see on the slide there. That's the old slide. All of the slides I'm going to show you now are new ones that I took on this last trip, so they're only a few days old. They're just baby slides. <laughs> But before we get into that, let me somewhat introduce it by just looking at some passages, and let's look up these passages. But first of all, if you think about Bible prophecy, and a lot of people shy away from it, and are fearful of it, and don't even talk about it, particularly in the church, some pastors think it's too controversial, but I think... You need eschatology to have a proper perspective to live day by day. And in fact, it is especially useful in terms of enduring suffering because it gives you a different perspective. Sometimes you get lost in the midst of suffering, in the midst of difficult times. You have to have a biblical perspective, and I think eschatology does that for you. By the way, that was one of the courses I taught in Kiev was a whole course on eschatology, not just the Olivet Discourse. But just some examples. In other words, why do people that have different opportunities, and I just had in my notes Pat Tillman, anyone remember him? He was a NFL prospect, very outstanding athlete. In fact, he had offers to play in the NFL, make millions of dollars, and he turned it down in order to fulfill a higher calling, a believer, but also a patriot, and one that actually died as a result of that decision. But what makes somebody make those kinds of decisions when they could have had a very easy life following them? Or in terms of athletes, why do they devote so much energy and so much effort for what a non-athlete would say useless goals? In other words, just to win a game? takes a lot of effort, a lot of uh, perseverance and commitment. And you do that because you have a different you have a different perspective, you have a higher purpose. You you have a vision in terms of what you want to accomplish, so you endure the training. And in fact, some even find it I don't know how, it's kind of sick probably, but even enjoyable. Or the persecuted, what maintains them? What enables them to continue in the midst of persecution. In fact, one of the places that I visited in Israel was Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust Memorial. And a lot of those people survived only, in fact, they make the point, only because they had a hope 
They had a hope that they would get out of that situation. And those that did not have a hope, many of them just died because they had nothing to sustain them. So what is it that sustains you? And it is that forward-looking, it's that future aspect, it's that biblical perspective that I think eschatology can give you. Martyrs, what is it that allows them to stand up knowing that they are going to die if they do not renounce Jesus Christ? Well, they have a future perspective. They know that death is not the end. They know that there's more beyond this earthly existence. And I don't know what your situation is, but I think, and I assume that many of you, because you have a biblical perspective, you continue, you endure, and you continue to walk, and you continue to endure whatever you have to face. Some of you face more difficult situations than others. Jeannie uh, just overcame a sickness or is in the process. What causes you to do that? And I think part of it is your future perspective or your thoughts concerning the fact that what you're going through now is going to end. And the Lord has something far better in the future, particularly even beyond this life. So let's look up these passages, because I think these give us a perspective on eschatology as something of an introduction to this new semester, if you will, new grace group semester, and uh, kind of clue us back into where we've been in terms of the Olivet Discourse. Somebody's got... Jenny, you got Titus 2, 1 Corinthians, Connie, Romans 8, Dave, 1 John, who wants to do 1 John? Mal, uh, 2 Timothy 4, who wants to do that one? Craig, 2 Corinthians 5. A lot of passages, but if we read them, go ahead, Jacob. Okay, who's got Titus 2, uh, Jenny? And, and keep in mind, notice the context of all of these. All of these are, are passages that are intended to encourage the reader, but it's from the perspective of eschatology, every one of these. Go ahead and read it. Okay, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly. Keep reading. Okay, did you get that? anticipating or waiting for, in other words, with the perspective that the Lord's going to return, with the perspective that when he comes, everything's going to be changed. So we endure and we continue because he is going to transform all things. Titus 2, 11 through 13. 1 Corinthians 15, Connie, and this pertains more personally in terms of our own experience and what we're experiencing now. Read 51 through 53. Behold, I tell a mystery. We shall not all sleep in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. We shall all be changed in the twinkling of an eye. We anticipate that. We look forward to that, especially in the midst of suffering. Keep reading. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised. For this, this corrupt must put on. This corruptible is going to pass away, must put on incorruptible. We anticipate. Hope for that. Okay, very good. Romans eight eighteen, and you could read on, but just read verse 18. Uh, in the midst of suffering, notice the perspective. I reckon that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed. That's what we hope for, is a future glory. So no matter what it is that we experience now, 
it is not to even be compared to the glory that we will experience. So we endure, we persevere, we continue, and we allow the Lord to bring whatever circumstance into our experience. First John 3, 2, another one that's real personal. can't remember who's got that one. Now we are children of God, not yet appeared as yet, but we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be just Okay. We will be like him. In other words, we will be resurrected in resurrected bodies like Jesus Christ. So no matter what we experience, that's our hope. Second Timothy 4, 7 and 8. I have fought a good fight. This is Paul. This is Paul just before he's going to be martyred. He's in prison. He's about to die. He knows what's going to happen. And this is his perspective. End of his life. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Okay, he's been faithful. He's persevered. The end is near. But he anticipates a crown. What, what kind of crown? Crown of righteousness. In other words, a reward. He anticipates what God has for him beyond this life. Then Second Corinthians 5, 8. We are confident. Yes, well pleased rather to be absent from the body and the presence of the Lord. Okay, we are well pleased to be absent from the body. In other words, we anticipate, we hope for, we desire to be with the Lord in uninterrupted fellowship. Right now, everything kind of clouds our thinking and difficulty sometimes is unpleasant, but we anticipate things better. So this is how we endure, and this is the main thrust. In fact, most Bible prophecy, most prophetic passages, for example, the entire book of Revelation was written to a persecuted church, people that are enduring for the faith. The books of the Old Testament, many of them were written when Israel was in its uh, most difficult time, and books in the New Testament as well, to people that are suffering, to give them a... a Eternal perspective. Uh, Jim. No, it was written in the first century to a church that was suffering the persecution of Domitian. In other words, the original audience was a persecuted uh, church. Yep. So, we've been looking at the Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse is written to disciples who are about to be persecuted because they have followed Jesus Christ. Christ, three days later, is going to be put on the cross. They're going to be scattered. They need a perspective, and they need a lot of other things that God is going to give them in the Olivet Discourse. They're going to be prepared for a future ministry. So this is an important portion of not only Matthew's Gospel, but the Gospels in general. So we've been looking, we looked at a setting, and just a few photographs, these are new ones. This is what the disciples would have been looking at, they would have been seeing, well, not exactly this, but uh, the Jerusalem wall that would have been here, this is the east wall, there would have been an east gate there that they would have observed, and they would have been on the Mount of Olives to the right of the slide, and like I said, I just took these on this last trip, so this slide's how many days old? And you've seen that slide before, or that gate before, a uh, different perspective. One thing that surprised me is there were very few people. I was going to ask, did you uh, somehow edit no. the photograph? No, I did not. In fact, I was there by myself. 
And, uh, in fact, the lady said that uh, this year is a very poor year in terms of their tourist industry. So, bring people, she says. That's part of the problem. Israel, however, is the safest place on the planet. Safest place on the planet. It's safer than your neighborhood. So that's not a concern, but people are scared away. In fact, there was, when I got back, what, there were, there was, uh, there was some stabbings in, or shooting in Tel Aviv. Well, there were 15 in Chicago. Same day. <laughs> Didn't hit the news. Alright? Okay. From the Golden Gate, but just turned around. In fact, see that bush over there to the right here? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that bush. That bush. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Mount of Olives. So the disciples would have been somewhere on the Mount of Olives, and Jesus is teaching them basically what's going to happen down down the road in the future. Another thing that is of interest, we've talked in the Alvet Discourse, it uh, alludes to, at least if not overtly described, 70 A.D., or predicts it, Jesus himself. And probably the clearest passage is in Matthew chapter 23, when he talks about their house being left desolate, in other words, it's going to be destroyed. Well, while I was there, I visited a site. Now, this is on the other side of Temple Mount. So this is on the western wall. In fact, that's the southwest corner of one portion of Temple Mount. These stones were stones from not necessarily the temple itself, but that whole complex. They were cast over those Herodian tall walls smashed down onto what they've uncovered below these stones, first century street level, and they did damage to that first century street, as you can see there. So these date back to the time of Christ, first century, 70 A.D. And this is a site that I have on our itinerary that if you go, we'll, we'll visit that. So I thought that was interesting because it ties in with 70 A.D. and the destruction of the temple. In fact, the destruction of the whole city and the destruction of the whole nation of Israel. And it's only been since 1948 that they've regathered and reestablished a nation. So you can look forward to that. So that's a little bit of the setting of where this took place. We spent a lot of time dealing with this period of time that is future, and I said it's very specific. It's not persecution in general. It has a particular purpose. It's prophesied over and over in the Old Testament. In fact, in the Old Testament, Daniel gives us an exact time frame for this period called tribulation. And because of all of that, I believe the church will not experience that period of time. It doesn't mean that we're trying to escape suffering. It doesn't mean that we want to believe this in order to relieve our fears or whatever. But it's because God has a plan that I think he's revealed very clearly, particularly in the Old Testament, dealing with the nation of Israel. Right now we are seeing, I think, what Ezekiel 37 describes as a two-phase regathering. We are seeing the political, the physical, the material regathering of the nation of Israel. They await a second phase, and it's this period of time 
that God will use in the nation of Israel to bring them to genuine faith. In other words, they will believe in the Messiah. But it will not take place by Bible prophecy until this period of time. And I think, logically, it makes sense that God is going to use suffering to bring people to the end of their rope so that they can realize that Jesus really is the Messiah. And the Bible predicts that. Say that again. Ezekiel 37. The vision of the dry bones. We looked at that when we were looking at the Olivet Discourse. So this is a very specific period of time. And in Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, he talks about a week of years that have not yet been fulfilled. A week of years, that's seven years. Daniel breaks it down into two parts. The book of Revelation, in at least five different places, breaks it down in two, three and a half year period of time. So it's very specific. It does not necessarily begin with the rapture. The Old Testament gives a specific event that kicks off the the calendar again, or starts the clock ticking, and that's a covenant that Israel will enter into with this prince. And other scriptures seem to correlate with the idea that that prince is Antichrist himself. And it will probably take place probably shortly after the rapture. There may be a span of time in there. We have no idea. There's no prophecy that says anything about that. So it's a period of tribulation. So this is very specific. It does not pertain to the church. In fact, in the book of Revelation from chapter 4 to the end of the book, the church is not mentioned uh, in terms of the word ecclesia. There's one little passage that refers to the church, but the church is in heaven. It's Revelation 19. So we have a rapture where the church is taken out And then sometime after that, it starts a seven-year period of time that Daniel describes in Daniel chapter 9. And Jesus, I believe, in the Olivet Discourse, is describing, at least the first portion of it, he's describing the conditions of that seven-year period of time. And we looked in some detail at that. He describes that period, the first part I take, he's describing... The first three and a half years in verses 4 through 14, and he calls them the beginning of birth pangs. He uses the analogy of a woman pregnant, about to give birth, entering a phase of birth pangs that increase in severity as you get closer and closer to the birth, and frequency as well, they increase. And that's the analogy he uses to describe this terrible time of suffering that the whole world will experience, including Jewish people. So that's just the beginning, first three and a half years. An event takes place in the middle, Daniel pinpoints it and says it's in the middle. Jesus describes it in verse 15. He calls it the abomination that makes desolate. And there's other scriptures that we looked at that describe that in detail. Then, after that, Jesus calls from 15 to 28, I believe, at least I've used his word to describe the last three and a half, as great tribulation. In other words, greater than the first three and a half. Greater than anything the world has ever seen, and some of the passages that we looked at, there'll be never a time like that again on the face of the earth. In fact, time after that is a glorious time, because what ends this seven year is the second coming of Jesus Christ. And last semester we 
Well, we looked at the second coming, verses 29 through 31 as well. In fact, that's how we closed out our our session. So that chronologically, see, overall, Jesus is dealing with a time frame and giving a somewhat of a chronological sequence here. So 24, 29 through 31. And 25, by the way, he's going to talk about the kingdom. And he's going to do it in parables. In fact, the rest of the Olivet Discourse, the focus will be parabolic literature parables. So we're entering the next part of the Olivet Discourse, part four, and I title it Applications for the Olivet Discourse. And that'll run through the rest of chapter 24. And then chapter 25 will be another section, we'll call that Kingdom, Kingdom in Parables. So 32 through 51, not too many verses there, but a series of, of parables. And in fact, not only parables, but illustrations. Six distinct and different, either parables and or illustrations, but parables are illustrations, so I call them six illustrations. We look at the parable of the fig tree, very simple one. I think some theologians have made it too complicated. We'll take a look at that. That's Matthew 24, verses 32 to 36. This is on your outline sheet, and we'll probably get into that one. There's an illustration of Noah's day. In other words, conditions preceding the second coming are going to be like days of Noah. So we'll look at those comparisons, 37 through 39. And then he uses an illustration that I call an illustration of judgment. And the reason I emphasize that is because people mix that passage up and say, well, here's a... A description of the rapture, and it's tor- it's after the tribulation. So post-tribulationists will use that little passage, verses 40 through 42, and where it talks about one being taken and another one being left, that has nothing to do with the rapture, and we'll try to describe that. Those that are taken are swept away in judgment, and those that are left are the ones that survive it. We'll talk about that, okay? And then uh, in, there's one that, that's in uh, Mark's account of the Olivet Discourse, but not in Matthew. We have another parable. We'll take a look at it. It's the parable of a traveler. Now, each one of these are designed to encourage the believer along some aspect. In some cases, they're warning. In other words, be alert. In some cases, encouragement. In other words, keep on going. In other cases, motivational, we'll, we'll look at all those aspects. So that's how we apply Bible prophecy. So we have a parable of the traveler. Fifthly, we have a parable of the homeowner. This is back in Matthew chapter 24. And by the way, some of the ones in Matthew are not in Mark and or Luke. And then the sixth one is the parable of servants. And that one is more motivational. In other words... When these events take place and you think the, the second coming is about to come, don't go to the mountains, don't abandon what you're doing. In other words, be a faithful servant. So all of these are have a different aspect to them that give us a biblical perspective. So 24, 45 through 51 is the last parable. And today we'll only have time to look at the parable of the fig tree and we probably won't even complete it. Let me give you a little background on parables. Now, I've done this before, but it's been, what, 20 years or so? 
<clears throat> so let me remind you. What are the characteristics of parables? This is in order for us to properly interpret them, properly to understand them, properly to properly gain the essence of them, to know what the meaning is conveyed. These are the characteristics. And keep these in mind. The, these characteristics are applicable to all parables in the New Testament, parables in the Old Testament. And only the Lord Jesus Christ uses parables in the New Testament. And some of the prophets use parables in the Old Testament. And there's a couple in some of the historical books as well. But these are the characteristics of parables. Connie? Something that's... Yeah, Connie's giving it away, so... She's telling us what the characteristics are. <laughs> Good, Connie. Okay, number one. Exactly what Connie said. <laughs> Parables are designed to illustrate truth. They're illustrations. Okay? And the reason you want to emphasize that is you want to be careful. Don't Try to make parables walk, what you might say, metaphorically or parabolically. Don't try to make them walk on all fours. In other words, don't try to make every little detail of the parable have meaning in it. It's an illustration. And just like illustrations, illustrations generally illustrate one or two things that you're trying to illustrate. So also parables. They're illustrations. So you want to look with what is the correspondence. In other words, here is the illustration. What is the meaning of that illustration? In other words, what what corresponds with the parable? And that's what we'll do with these parables. Now, is it fair to say then that they are illustrations but not doctrine? Yes. They're illustrations. And, and that's another caution. Don't formulate your doctrine on parables. If the only support for a particular doctrine is a parable, then you probably have a shaky doctrine. Very good, Mel. Exactly. These are illustrations. And sometimes they're illustrations of certain doctrines. Okay? So you develop the doctrine first, and then a parable, on some occasions, if that's the purpose of the parable, will illustrate that doctrine. Not all of them, but in some cases. Very good. So, keep that in mind. The major characteristic of parables is they illustrate truth. So, we'll spend time not necessarily trying to extract every little nuance of meaning of every little aspect of it, but we will try to look at it as a whole and what is being illustrated by this parable. Make sense? And this is what you want to do when you encounter parables in your study as well. Secondly, they're generally comparisons and, and or contrasts. In other words, uh, if it's a comparison, a parable will give a little story, and then there's something similar to it that you can draw from it that is a spiritual application. And it's a comparison. In other words, this is compared to this. The parable of the fig tree is a comparative parable. It's giving us an illustration of a fig tree and its relationship to summer, and then we have something related to what he's trying to, the point he's trying to make in terms of the application. Sometimes there are contrast. In other words, sometimes you'll have a parable, and then the opposite is the truth that you draw from it. Make sense?
So they're comparison and contrast. Thirdly, they pack a punch, some of them. Some of them have a very pointed punch, you might say. Uh, that's not Amanda, by the way. <laughs> they're designed to elicit a response. Parables. One of the characteristics. That's what we mean by pack a punch. Now, when you tell a joke, you have what? A punchline, because you're trying to elicit a response. You're trying to, in a case of a joke, you're trying to elicit laughter or amusement or some response in that humorous area. Parables, similarly, they're not packing a punch that brings laughter, but they, a parable ha- are trying to stimulate a spiritual response. Make sense? And sometimes very pointedly, in fact, probably the most pointed one that Jesus gives is the parable of the Good Samaritan. Because he tells a story that really cuts really right to the heart of any listener that is not a good neighbor, in other words. And in the first century, he's telling a story of, obviously, this person that is in desperate need on the side of the road, and the, what is it, the Pharisee or the lawyer or some, or some Jewish leader, I think he was a Pharisee, looks over there across the street and keeps on going. He's too busy. He's got a, you know, he's got an appointment or something. Then another Jewish guy, you know, it's, he can't, he can't help. He's a priest. Or a priest, yeah, one of them. So it's pointed towards a Jewish audience. And then amongst the Jewish audience, the group, the terrorist, if you will, of that culture, the one that is most hated, the one that is the most outcast, was the Samaritan. It's the Samaritan that stops. Now, doesn't that slap the face of any Jewish reader? That's that's the point here. A parable packs a punch in that way. Now, some of them more mildly than others. Uh, the one I gave you as an example is probably the most biting, if you will. David? I read uh, somewhere that, in this case, the word is hyperbole. Sometimes there's hyperbole. In other words, exaggeration. Yeah, you might find that in some parables as well. Yeah, but uh, designed to elicit a response. That's what we mean by packing a punch. Fourthly, uh, they are like lifelike. In other words, these stories or these situations could actually be something that you could experience in life. In other words, something that's real. They're not fantasies, they're not fictional, they are real-life situations. And most of them in in Jesus' ministry dealt with things that people encountered every day, particularly in agriculture, the parable of the four seeds, for example. It was an agricultural environment there, and people were familiar with some ground produces more, another ground doesn't produce any because it's rocky. So... Lifelike, in other words, reality. It's not fictional, not fantasy. So we have lifelike examples that are are attempts to elicit a real life experience as well. Okay? So we've been looking at the Olivet Discourse, and first thing we want to look at is the parable of the fig tree in 32-36. And I've broken it down on your outline sheet in two parts. We have the exposition of it, in other words, the description of the parable, and then that's verses 32 and 33. And then the next part, it's more of an expansion, or I call it explanation, 
where the point is made very clear. In other words, there should not be any confusion as to the meaning of this parable. Unfortunately, some theologians have introduced a little bit of a confusion concerning it. Okay, so here it is. Here's the exposition, 32-33. Now, I like to give you the whole sentence because hermeneutically you want to deal with sentence by sentence when you're studying. We've emphasized that throughout. So this is kind of a complicated sentence, but it, within it is a parable. But grammatically, uh, some of the high points of the sentence now learn. So Jesus begins this whole thing. He wants them to learn a lesson here. He wants them to learn, learn in the sense of applicational learning. Not so much in terms of doctrinal learning, but more in terms of uh, applicational learning. That's part of the process. So truly to learn, and this is just the basic word to learn, the basic idea of learning is now this is part of my experience. In other words, I understand it mentally, but I also have it part of my experience. That's the kind of learning he's talking about here. So now learn the parable of the fig tree. So the, the main verb of the whole thing is kind of a exhortation to learn something from here. He's going to make a point. He's going to draw an application. He's given doctrine concerning eschatology, concerning events, concerning future things. Now he wants us to learn. And by the way, this is probably key to the rest of the chapter, all the way to verse 51. Because he's going to give a series of these applicational learning by application parables and illustrations. So learn is the main verb. And then we have another verb later on, you know. So you're learning something. This is a complex sentence. You know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, another third verb. So we have three verbs in this. And remember, you isolate the verbs. This is the main part of every sentence grammatically. And it helps you understand what is being communicated here. So Jesus wants us to grasp something, not just intellectually, but in an applicational way. And now he's reminding us in the middle of it that we already know certain things. So this parable deals with thing, everyday experience that we know about. That's the essence of the parable. And then now he wants us to get the point of it is recognize now kind of the correspondence. See that? So the three verbs kind of clue you in in the main understanding of what he's doing here. So let's break it down further. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. So he's going to give a parable relating to fig trees. Anyone have fig trees? Ah, you got a couple of them. So you're familiar with them, more so than I am. So fig trees. So the better you know what fig trees are all about, the better you'll be acquainted with what Jesus is, is telling you. Now it's not complex. You don't need to have a lot of biology here, but some basic truths about fig trees. Unfortunately, what we tend to do as Bible teachers sometimes, and sometimes very good ones, we mix the thing up. And unfortunately, there's a very common interpretation that I think we need to clarify and spend some time clarifying. So let's clarify it. And what I've got here are three basic different views. The third one, I think, is the proper view of let it stand as an illustration, and I think the first one makes that mistake of not doing that. I don't think the fig tree necessarily pertains to the nation of Israel. 
very good Bible teachers, conservative, from our camp, interpret the fig tree as the nation of Israel. Well, what it's doing is it's adding meaning that's not intended, I don't think. In other words, the fig tree is not a picture of Israel. In fact, what it's doing is making the parable a prophecy, and the parable is not a prophecy. The parable is an application. Does that make sense? Now, this is very common. Uh, And the basis for it is in other places, a fig tree is used as an example of the nation of Israel or an illustration of the nation of Israel. In fact, Jesus does that. In fact, he did it chronologically, not too distant time frame from the the giving of the Olivet Discourse. Remember, what did he do to a fig tree on one occasion? He cursed it. And I think what he was doing deliberately was describing a a comparison between a fig tree and the nation of Israel. It did not bear fruit. Jesus cursed it. And it's an illustration, really, of coming judgment upon the nation of Israel. Now, in that context, the fig tree does, in fact, represent the nation of Israel. I don't think it does in this case. Make sense? Now, you've probably heard that interpretation, and you've probably had this. So I'm kind of emphasizing it, because I've got to wash it out of your minds. Because <laughs> it'll linger, right? So, I don't think it's the nation of Israel. There's a lot of reasons for that, that uh, we don't have quite enough time to talk about. Another thing that others have said, and this is minor, and you probably haven't heard this one, some interpret it as representing the leaders of the temple, in that, They're like this fig tree, but they're unaware of what's going on, and it's kind of a far-out interpretation. The best approach is that it's just a simple illustration. First two are injecting meaning that I don't think Jesus intended. I think he's just taking an illustration, and in this case, an illustration relating to time and relating to his coming, not relating necessarily the nation of Israel, and not relating to anything else. I think that's adding meaning that was never intended. So let's just take it as a simple illustration. So let's break it down and see what he's trying to illustrate, and then we'll pick up. We probably will only get to verse 33 here. So learn a parable from the fig tree, and here it is, very simple. When its branches has be- has already become tender, okay, Mary Lee, what happens when the branches are tender or beginning to soften? Okay, it puts forth its leaves, and what do you know? It's warmer outside. It's not going to freeze again, hopefully. (laughs) Okay, summer is around the corner. That's a simple illustration, okay? Don't take it any further than that. So verse 33, So you too, from that simple illustration that everybody can grasp, even a child, even somebody that doesn't have a fig tree, the rest of us. So, you too, when you see all these things, what is he talking about? All these things. All the previous verses. Everything he's been talking about. Verses 4 through 31. When you begin to see these things. Now, it doesn't pertain to the rapture. He's not talking about things preceding the rapture. In the context of the Olivet Discourse, he's talking about the things that he just finished describing. In other words, the tribulation, not the second coming, because that's part of what he's trying to awaken within them 
and I think an urgency to be prepared, to be ready for it. So verses 4 through 28, basically, all those things. And those are signs. In other words, when you begin to see an accumulation of wars and rumors of wars, uh, when you see the signing of the covenant, you see the abomination that makes desolate, you see the world falling apart, when you begin to see these things, recognize that he is near. He's dealing with a chronological issue, not an issue of the nation of Israel. Make sense? He is near right at the door. Now, who is the he? Well, the New American Standard interprets it, and I think correctly, with capitalizing it, Messiah. In other words, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is near. So it's a simple parable with a simple little application. In other words, have a perspective. In other words, live your life. Now, we can apply it, even though we're not the ones going through the tribulation. Now, those that are actually seeing those things, it has a direct application to them. But like all scripture that is inspired, we can draw an application as well. And we can draw an application from the culture in which we are living in, and we can apply it in terms of things related, for example, to the rapture. But the initial audience was the Jewish audience, and we'll talk some more about that next time. Mary Lee? No. I mean, uh, yes, yeah. Okay. Yep. So Jesus is saying this, why did he put it in the first person? Why did he put it himself in the third person? Very good question. In fact, this is an objection that people make, and that's a very good observation. The same answer that we've been given, he, he's done this consistently through the Olivet Discourse. And what we've said, he is speaking as a prophet. And prophetically, this is typical of what the prophets do. And I gave you a few examples from Isaiah, where he is addressing his contemporaries, and he speaks to them as if he is speaking directly to them in the time that he lived. But from what he's describing, there's no way that it could be fulfilled in that time frame. And I think Jesus is doing something very similar. And that's just typical of prophetic literature. It's not uncommon in prophetic literature. So, but good question. Recognize that he is near right at the door. We've already seen this uh, in other portions of the Elliot Discourse. Okay. So it's a simple illustration. When a tree has leaves, summer is near. Don't add anything to that. That's all that he's trying to illustrate. So also, when you see these signs, 4 through 29, actually 28, I think, second coming is near. That's the basic thrust. And therefore, now he's going to add to that, he's going to add to that, we'll add to that, and I think as we add to it, I think that the, the, what he wants us to have is an urgency. In other words, a sense of time is short, I need to take advantage of the time, I need to keep things in order, I cannot be knocked off guard because of these events that are pressing in on me. I need to have a sense of perspective in the midst of what's going on amongst us. So just uh, kind of the essence of this parable, signs of the second coming should create a sense of urgency. And from our perspective, we should have a sense of urgency in terms of the understanding the times in which we live. Who wants to close in the word of prayer for us? Bob. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the revelation of the word study. We thank you all the future all in time for holy persons operating on earth and ask that you will give us grace.
take away your word hearts this morning and apply it. Amen.